We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Reamer. Today, we welcome nationally recognized auditor, educator, and author Terry Fletcher. She says hospitals appear to be swamped by COVID patients. But are they coming in with COVID or for COVID? Also today, Dr. John Fogel has the latest update on the deadly coronavirus. Some conservative states are targeting race as a factor in COVID treatment. Linnell James provides his insight. We'll get the latest coding news from Laurie Johnson. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer delivers her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who has never hosted Saturday Night Live, but he's available, Chuck Buck. Yeah, please let everybody know I am available. Thanks, Clark, very much. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 492nd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. You know, uh, just as you think we reported everything there is to know about the coronavirus, well, guess what? We haven't. There's always something to report about this deadly virus. Indeed there is. Terry Fletcher stops by here later today to report on word usage, actually about two prepositions, with COVID and for COVID. That's right. And as more and more hospitals admit patients, the words for and with are garnering great significance. Yep, with hospitals filling up with patients who have COVID, uh, the diagnosis, of course, linked to their stay. But what is the actual admission for? That's the question we're going to find out from Terry. And later in the broadcast, we're going to circle back for your talkback segment. What's on your radar screen today? Well, I'm going to talk about some verbiage, too, about whether we should be using fully vaccinated or up-to-date. Very good. We always look forward to your talkback segment. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is brought to you by ICD University Bookstore, inviting you to purchase the webcast and the book on the 2022 Social Determinants of Health. Get comprehensive help to correctly use the ICD-10 CMC codes to report social determinants data. This special package is available at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And I've talked about disproportionate share hospital or dish payments before. Medicare pays additional amounts if they treat a large volume of Medicaid patients. The payments are in part driven by a ratio of Medicaid inpatient days a hospital has to total patient days. It's also impacted by the number of Medicare patients that are also covered by Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. Indeed, unless hospitals meet a qualifying ratio of the sum of these ratios, hospitals will not receive any dish payment at all. Assuming that the hospital meets the first test, The largest driver of payments for most hospitals is the amount of bad debts and charity care that the hospital provides. You would think that the amount of charity care and bad debts would be proportional to the ratio of Medicaid patients to total patients. This doesn't appear to be the case. Hospitals have different methodologies for writing off charity and bad debt cases, and some hospitals are more aggressive and have taken up novel rationales for writing off certain claims. Now the newest twist. You would think in the middle of an epidemic like COVID, charity and bad debts will go up. It appears that charity and bad debts reported on Medicare cost reports is actually going down nationally. It may be that people were scared to go to the hospital. It may be that many hospitals were closed to elective procedures. I think more analysis is going to be required. The ratio of Medicaid days to total days was used as a proxy for several years while Medicare created a validation process for charity care and bad debts. I think we need to see how we can standardize the computation of charity care and make this a fair process for all. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Jim, very much. That was Jim Powell. Jim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's January the 25th, and you're listening to the 492nd Live Edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Get a clear understanding of the latest coding, billing, and documentation rules specific to critical care including a policy change that allows physicians and non-physicians to share services. Register to attend Critical Care Services 2022 Coding Update and Major Policy Changes. This essential webcast features subject matter expert and medical practice coding expert Betsy Nicoletti. You will learn several key areas that can help you mitigate your risks for reporting critical care, how a group membership and specialty designation affects coding, how to document medical necessity for concurrent services, when a surgeon is permitted to bill for critical care in the global period, and much more. Register now to attend this important webcast on Tuesday, January 25th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Now that we are approaching the end of January, you may be looking for guidance to update your facility coding guidelines. You can Google Developing Facility-Specific Coding Guidelines and select the article from the Journal of AHIMA, January 14, 2020. There is also an article posted on www.icd10monitor.com, and it's entitled The Need for Facility Coding Guidelines, and it's dated October 6, 2020. I have been updating my guidance and have added some new topics. For newborns, your guidelines should address circumcisions. These procedures should be coded as they carry procedural risk. Newborn hearing tests. Review whether these procedures should be coded. Do you provide data related to this procedure? Is there a regulatory requirement to assign a code? Phototherapy. This procedure does not affect MSDRG assignment, but again, you may need to provide data on this procedure. Some other topics to consider are interoperative neuromonitoring, dialysis, and total parenteral nutrition, or TPN. These procedures may not affect MSDRGs or APRDRGs, but are frequently questioned by coders regarding the need to assign a code. Remember that there should be a reason to assign any diagnosis or procedure code. Another suggestion is to provide a list of new technology add-on payment items to the department, which does the ordering for your facility. So if they begin to order something that's on the list, you can be notified. Some facilities are using their EHR to provide nudges regarding NENTAPs. You don't want to leave any money on the table. The bottom line is that you should review your facility coding guidelines frequently. And one last thought. This is you should be discussing your coding guidelines with various departments, which include quality, CDI, pharmacy, marketing, revenue cycle, and compliance to ensure that you are collecting data to support the organization and the escalation of issues um, that you encounter. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? 
Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thanks again for an excellent article. Now, with the latest update on the deadly coronavirus, is Dr. John Fogel. Good morning, Dr. Fogel. So, Dr. Fogel, what is the latest on this virus? It just doesn't seem to go away. Chuck, are you confused? Me too. I think everybody is. This month, the CDC changed everything from its quarantine guidelines to its mask recommendations. And last week, the Supreme Court tripped in by overturning vaccination or test requirements for large private businesses while enforcing vaccination mandates on hospitals and their healthcare workers. It's no wonder we are nearly two years into this pandemic. Every pandemic should only be a public health issue. Instead, this one's been a political and legal one too. And then there was last Friday's news. The musician and staunch anti-vaxxer Meatloaf died, apparently of complications from COVID-19. His vaccination status remains unknown, but the assumption is that he was not. There's a lesson here. The best way to make sure you don't get real sick or die from COVID-19 is to not only make sure you're vaccinated, but to get boosted as well. A new study shows that getting boosted was 90% effective at preventing hospitalizations with the Omicron variant. Boosters also lower transmissibility and emergency department visits. I want to talk about what I've been seeing. Working in the emergency department seems different now than during the start of the pandemic, or when I was in a COVID-19 field hospital last winter. Patients who are getting admitted now with COVID tend to have one thing in common. They're not vaccinated. It truly seems like a pandemic of the unvaccinated. My fully vaccinated patients have presented with a headache, sore throat, sniffles, or no symptoms at all. One asymptomatic patient was called into the hospital to receive an organ transplant only to have hopes dashed and surgery postponed after testing positive. The other big difference is there's so much Omicron because of its ridiculously easy transmissibility that no effort can be made to segregate patients in emergency departments. The only thing that protects healthcare workers and non-infected patients from those with COVID is properly wearing the best quality face mask possible. Many of us have been wearing simple surgical masks or cloth ones. Those aren't good enough. I'd recommend double masking while indoors if that's all you've got. Better yet, wear an N95 or KN95, which are readily available for purchase online. I'm still surprised that I was the only masked member in the gym one early morning last week. I kept my distance from a few people who were coughing and made no effort to even cover their mouths. It's important to try to live normally, but it's more important to be considerate of others especially the elderly and immunocompromised, or to not actually try to get infected. So-called long COVID, which means long-term symptoms after the acute illness, are real. And even though vaccinations are safe and super effective at preventing hospitalizations, they don't 100% guarantee that you can't get sick. And what about testing? My opinion is that PCR tests for Omicron are basically worthless. They're difficult to schedule. They take too long to get results and don't tell you if you have a transmissible infection. You can test positive for weeks and even months after you've recovered from COVID, and PCR non-infectious viral fragments. Even in emergency departments, results typically return after a patient has been discharged. Special tests offering quick results are reserved only for those patients when it's urgent to know. Too many patients are simply showing up because they want a test. 
Did you know you can get four free tests sent to your home? Just contact covidtest.gov. These rapid antigen tests are the best. You should use them if you have flu-like symptoms so you can isolate if you test positive for COVID or when you all test because you safely want to gather with friends or family. It's the best way to protect yourself and protect others. These rapid tests are our ticket to the new normal. As for the future, Omicron won't be the last variant, but I believe the pandemic will end soon. Just like with the common cold and the flu, COVID isn't going to go away. We can live with it. It still means that wearing the best mask you can get and practicing social distancing will lower your risk of getting Omicron now. But it's vaccines that remain our best protection. One of Meatloaf's most well-known songs is two out of three ain't bad. He was right, but three out of three is so much better. Get boosted if you haven't yet. It may save your life. Thanks, John. That was Dr. John Fogel. Dr. Fogel is a frontline physician at the Brown University School of Emergency Medicine, and I couldn't agree more. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Dr. Fogel, thank you for an excellent report. The Associated Press is reporting that some conservative states are now taking aim at policies that allow doctors to consider race as a risk factor when allocating scarce resources for COVID-19. They say the protocols discriminate against white people. Here now with Insight is Linnell James. Good morning, Linnell. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate the opportunity to address that report. Uh, I'm going to take a page from uh, Dr. Fauci. We're not going to deal with the politics of it. We're just going to focus on the uh, the facts and the science. Uh, one of the things I had mentioned is my previous experience as part of my community outreach, Chuck, working with the uh, Great Lakes Regional Health Equity Council, which was supported by the Office of Minority Health. On that, I was part of the uh, Social Determinants of Health Committee, and one of the lessons they taught me early as the, the one IT guy in the room was talking about the, and I'll align this with the uh, discussion in COVID about how we treat uh, elder citizens. I don't think anybody questions that if you're over 65, it's so important to uh, get the vaccine and do the proper coverage. No one thinks that because we're working and focusing on over at 65 that we're discriminating against those young 40-year-olds or, or teenagers or college kids. It's just a better way to allocate the resources to make a difference. Uh, the same thing in this case. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson in 2018 did some seminal work and funded a variety of studies, and they put, put out a, a major report called Counting a Diverse Nation disaggregating data on race and ethnicity to advance a culture of health. Uh, the reality is the studies have shown uh, from, for a variety of things that tie to COVID, whether it's asthma, COPD, diabetes, uh, maternal mortality, all of them have a significant difference if you're a person of color. For example, for asthma, Black adults are three times higher in mortality than white adults. If you look at diabetes complications, uh, black patients are two to four times higher rates of those complications. And we talk about black mothers with maternal mortality, it's three times higher than white mothers. This actually from the Robert Wood Johnson report goes across all of the races, whether it's Asian, Hispanic, and when we say Hispanic, it's important to disaggregate. Cubans and Mexicans have different reactions to studies. Black immigrants have different reactions than African Americans. Same with Asians, same with Native Hawaiians. This isn't about uh, treating someone less, it's about focusing resources where the science says they need to go. 
Chuck, thanks for the time to share that information. Thank you, Linnell. That was Linnell James. Mr. James is a business lead for Health Information Exchange at the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, and he's a board member at Health 11 Incorporated. Coming up next, there are two grammatical prepositions that are causing confusion when admitting COVID patients. We'll learn why when we return after this very important message. This is Talked In Tuesday. Stand by. Here is an important message about malnutrition. Now you can gain a clearer understanding of severe malnutrition, its clinical criteria and CMS requirements for documentation, coding, and billing, as well as issues that increase your vulnerability to adverse auditor action. It's all available during exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast on February 17th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Dr. Beth Wolf will clearly explain the clinical criteria for severe malnutrition. Using the 2020 audit worksheets, should also point out the documentation gaps that increase audit vulnerability. In addition, you'll gain valuable insights into the addition of severe malnutrition to the PEPR. Register now to attend Severe Malnutrition, Increased Coding Compliance with Clinical Validation. That webcast is February 17th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Why are two grammatical prepositions causing confusion when admitting COVID patients? Well, here to explain the difference between with and for is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, listeners. So according to a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, the majority of people hospitalized with COVID in New Jersey were actually admitted for reasons other than COVID, officials said on January 10th. Of the 6,075 people with COVID-19 and hospitalized in the state, just 2,963 were admitted for COVID-19, New Jersey Health Commissioner Judith Persilli said during a briefing. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy added to her statement with, we have a fair number of what I've started to call COVID incidental or incidental COVID, meaning you went in because you broke your leg, but everyone's getting tested and it turns out you've got COVID and you didn't even know it. Previously during the pandemic, states largely neglected to distinguish COVID-19 hospitalizations from incidental COVID-19. However, after large numbers of people began testing positive after the emergencies after the emergence of Omicron variant, including those who have been vaccinated, some of who have required hospital care, a growing number of officials have started making it clear that not all COVID-19 hospitalizations are the same. In New Jersey, nearly one in three hospitalized people are designated as fully vaccinated or having received their second dose of Moderna or Pfizer vaccine or the single shot Johnson & Johnson at least two weeks prior to admission. The split between with or because of or for COVID isn't entirely clear cut, says not only New Jersey and New York's top health officials, but now this is also coming out of California. Priscilla stated that half, quote, half of the January hospitalized patients have what they call principal COVID-19 diagnosis. So the main reason for being admitted, the other half are testing positive for COVID and COVID then becomes a contributing or comorbid condition that could or not could or could not worsen their principal diagnosis or their principal reason for being admitted. According to Becker's hospital review of January 4th, some hospitals are seeing more patients with incidental COVID cases or patients who were primarily admitted for other ailments and test positive. New York Governor Kathy Hochul's asked hospitals to adjust their reporting on COVID-19 hospitalizations beginning January 4th to make the distinction between those admitted for the virus as their primary condition and those who incidentally tested positive or with COVID. Hospitals across the U.S. reported similar trends 53% 53% 471 COVID patients at Jackson, Florida Health System were primarily admitted for other reasons, and at a Baltimore-based John Hopkins Medicine, 
about 20% of patients seeking non-COVID-related care are testing positive. Also, Dr. Anisha Aja, MD, Dean of Brown University School of Public Health in Providence, Rhode Island, who practices at Providence VA Medical Center, explained the distinction between patients hospital, quote, for COVID-19 and those hospitals, quote, with COVID-19. He said, more common on our service is folks admitted with COVID. That is, they came to the hospital for something else and found to have COVID. Although it's attempt, attempt, it is tempting to dismiss such cases as incidental, they can still pose significant risk for patients with other issues, complicate care, and add stress to the system, Dr. Jahak continued to say. So a patient who is admitted for severe COVID-19 pneumonia is and obvious for COVID. Now, to me, in some cases, the question of whether hospitalization is for COVID seems unanswerable. For example, we have seen patients admitted with lower extremity blood clots or lung blood clots, but tested positive for COVID and displayed symptoms relating to COVID, though they were not technically hospitalized for COVID. So should this be coded as incidental COVID, even though our early history of this virus has confirmed that COVID increases the risk of blood clots? This is a physician judgment call or a query by the CDI staff to the admitting provider as this is a tough call and we want accuracy when reporting COVID-19. As a professional coder and auditor, I'm reviewing physicians charting and reporting daily and notice why that while other coders or that while coders have to be objective in our coding application, physicians use both objective and subjective judgment when adding their documentation insights, which can make accurate coding a challenge on this question of with or for COVID. Another new challenge with this highly contagious variant, Omicron, are patients who acquire, uh, who acquire the virus during their hospitalization, a coding and reporting consideration that hinges on admission diagnosis for COVID-related illness would characterize such patients as having incidental COVID, even though COVID would, uh, will undoubtedly increase the length of their stay and, for some, their risk of a bad outcome. Given this complexity, we are all looking for a consistent and standardized method to determine the fraction of hospitalized COVID patients who might correctly be characterized as having incidental COVID. Every state and every hospital's methodology and every provider's judgment is different, and because there's no current uniformity or unilateral specific processes to get the same conclusions for all COVID patient presentations, it is of the utmost importance that CDI staff, physicians, and NPPs alike document as detailed and as accurate as possible so that the reporting of this virus is as accurate as it can be and not defaulted to incidental because of lack of information. And my last note here is I don't like the word incidental. For me, as a professional coder, it sends the wrong message. From a CPT perspective, incidental can mean to leave off or not report. Please do not make that mistake here for COVID incidental. When a patient does test positive, it is imperative to report that on the patient. The only question is, was the patient admitted for COVID, principal or primary reason, or with COVID, in addition to other conditions? If as a coder, you cannot determine that, with or from, query the physician. It's their call, if not clear on the record. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Terry. That was great. That was nationally recognized professional auditor, educator, and author, Terry Fletcher. Now is the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features around Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. NCHS proposed creation of codes for unvaccinated and partially vaccinated for COVID-19 with implementation on April 1, 2022. Recently, there has been discussion as to what constitutes fully vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. People derogatorily refer to COVID-19 vaccines as being experimental, 
hearkening back to historical unethical experiments like Mangala's during the Holocaust or the Tuskegee syphilis study. Aren't all vaccines experimental initially? Either a new disease is discovered and we scramble to create a vaccine for that novel organism, or we discover new technology which might be employed to prevent a long-standing disease. It takes tincture of time to see if they work. At what point is the vaccine no longer experimental but considered tried and true? Experimental implies that a product is still in the process of being vetted as being able to treat or prevent an illness with relatively few side effects. Once sufficient studies have been done, enough subjects have tested the product, and enough time has elapsed to experience adverse effects, a product is no longer experimental, and even then, data continues to be collected. 4.77 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccine have been administered worldwide as of January 23, 2022. There have been nine deaths from thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome linked to J&J vaccine, and three deaths linked to Moderna. There have been rare, non-fatal cases of anaphylaxis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and myocarditis pericarditis related to vaccination. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System noted 11,000 other deaths in vaccinees, but vaccination was not deemed to be causative. If I get vaccinated and two days later I die of a myocardial infarction, which was preordained and unrelated, the vaccine shouldn't be blamed. This is correlation without causation. There have been over 860,000 deaths in the United States and 5.6 million deaths worldwide clearly attributed to COVID-19. There really is no argument about the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines as John Fogel uh, spoke of. It is disappointing that they don't completely prevent contracting or transmitting the disease, but there is no dispute that they prevent severe illness, hospitalization, and death. However, it's an evolving situation as to how many doses are required for that robust protection. And the answer is, we just don't know yet. The entire pandemic is one big experiment. The answers are unfolding in real time. Therefore, what constitutes being fully vaccinated is still being determined. Obviously, we need to ascertain that to be able to determine if someone is only partially vaccinated. A lot of the data about the number and timing of shots comes out of Israel. Read my entire article in ICD-10 Monitor for more details. The United States has been advocating for a booster shot, but the uptake has been tepid. People feel like Charlie Brown with Lucy handling the football. Every time they try to comply and kick the ball by getting a jab, she yanks it away. They thought they were fully vaccinated, and then Lucy said we needed another shot as a booster. The CDC may have to move the goalpost again. This is not nefarious or a capitalistic, money-grabbing action. This is a response to waning protection from the vaccine antibody response. There are many organizations, businesses, activities, and countries which are mandating full vaccination to participate or visit. As a vaccinator, I can attest that it is challenging to fit the stickers with the vaccine information on the limited-sized 
CDC COVID-19 vaccination cards as is. I support using up-to-date as opposed to fully vaccinated. If the timing interval changes, the definition of up-to-date will change as well. I was going to propose that the government develop and maintain a nationwide electronic system keeping track of where each individual stands. Apparently, the Vaccine Administration Management System already exists, but it is not universally implemented, but I think it should be. After a healthcare professional logs a COVID-19 vaccine dose for a recipient in the VAMS, a vaccine certificate or vaccine certificate QR code can be generated. The computer system can know where the goalpost is and can compare the vaccine recipient's status to it to determine if they are up to date. I could generate my QR code anywhere. There could be color coding, green, up to date, yellow, partially vaccinated but overdue for a shot, and red could indicate not vaccinated. Healthcare providers could query the status every visit, update people's vaccinations, and enter new vaccinations into the electronic record. Judging vaccine efficacy depends on reliable data. Coders need to be able to determine when Z28.311, partially vaccinated for COVID-19, is applicable. Without knowing what fully vaccinated means, we can't figure out who is only partially vaccinated. I think it means not up to date with the currently recommended vaccination schedule, whatever that might be at this moment in time. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very, very much. That's going to be a wrap for our 492nd live edition of Talk to Intuition. I want to thank our panelists today, Linnell James, Dr. John Fogel, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, and Terry Fletcher, who reported our lead story. And as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Eric Reamer. And until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Talk to Tuesday and IC10 Monitor. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Talk to Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.